you know, I was listening to this uh, news story, and it was about this family that they, their house, they, they started noticing this really strange thing happen. The first time it happened, just, I was like, that was, that was weird why that took place. Something knocked on their door thinking that they had their iPhone because, you know, there's this handy feature now, find my iPhone. So, you know, if you want to locate your device, it's you know, somewhere deep within your mattress or it's at your friend's house or whatever. Pull it up on another one. Of course, this is your parents' favorite technology to stalk you and find out where you are as well. Uh, but people were, were, were opening up the Find My iPhone app and it was telling them that their, their device was at this particular family's house. And uh, the situation started to get uh, a little bit more and more uncomfortable and frightening. Uh, one time, there were these group of guys that kind of looked like maybe they were gang members, and they were convinced that somebody they were looking for was inside of their house. And so they show up, it's like 1 a.m., and their kids are in bed, and, and people are like, where's so-and-so? I know he's in there, it says it right here. And so they, they're, they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And, and it turns out that that feature, what it does, is at first it tries to GPS locate the device, and if it can't get a signal on that, it's gonna go for where the nearest Wi-Fi was. Well, well they, they lived in a neighborhood of like great-grandparents and octogenarians. Uh, so they were the only, pe only people in the neighborhood with internet. And so it just would randomly pick their house and that's where all of the find my iPhone random locations would get dumped. And uh, so what they ended up doing, there's this company that runs this, and so they said, all right, we're, gonna, we're just going to create another random location. It's like in the middle of some lake somewhere, and so all of those uh, dislocated Find My iPhone things will get uh, redirected toward the lake. And, and the, the person uh, telling the story thought it was like, oh, it's like, if you just stand at that lake, it's like there's 100 uh, iPhones at the bottom of it. Uh, but we can experience this in our own lives as well, right? We, we, we can get dislocated, and we, we just sang about it tonight. We are, we're prone to wander. There, there's, there is a location, and there's a plan for our lives, and we all know this, right? It, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for us to become distant from that and, and find ourselves at another location that, that we weren't intended to be. And, um, you know, the, the new year is, it, it's, a, it's a good opportunity. There, there's nothing magical about the calendar, right? Uh, 2016 is gone, here's 2017. And the reality is you're exactly the same person, right? Um, but this is the wisdom of God, I think. He, he, he put in place times and seasons that would help us. I mean, life could just be this monotonous, sameness all the way through. Nothing ever changes. There's no, it's kind of like what it's like to live in the New Orleans area. You don't get any seasons. It's just summer and then a glimpse into Arctic rain and then back to summer. But, uh, but you know, God established seasons and patterns of, of life um, because there are opportunities for us to reflect and consider, where am I? What am I doing? What am I about? And is that what I want to be about? Right? So at the start of this year, where's your location? What world are you in? And, and do you have desires for this year? Are there, are there aspirations? Are there resolutions that 
are stirring inside of you that you, you hope to see and experience for this year? Because uh, these, these come from somewhere. And, and, and the theme of, of this retreat is something that I, I want to see instilled. And you guys, and, and in myself as well, th- th- this year, which is confidence. And rightly understood, it's, it's a quality that will lead to pursuing every other good thing, right? This quality, when you define it correctly, confidence, it's what leads you toward it. It's what enables you to pursue every other good thing that God wants for your life. And, and it's something that honestly is in very short supply today. Although there are a lot of voices uh, talking about some version of it. Uh, but let me clarify what I mean by confidence because here's one possible definition and it's not what I have in mind, right? Number one in the dictionary, sure of oneself, having no uncertainty about one's own abilities, correctness, successfulness, etc., self-reliant and bold. I don't know, maybe you've heard the, the song Confident by Demi Lovato. And uh, here are some of the lyrics from that. This kind of reflects this perspective. It's time for me to take it. I'm the boss right now. Not going to fake it. Not when you go down because this is my game. And you better come to play. What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being confident? It's time to get the chains out. Is your tongue tied up? Because this is my ground and I'm dangerous. And you can get out. But it's all about me tonight. Uh, Now, you have to wonder, if she's so confident, why does she keep having to remind herself of this over and over again? It's like an anthem to her own importance. Like the person she's trying to convince here is is just herself. But but here's the irony. The people who are self-confident, quote-unquote, are the same people who are constantly questioning themselves. You know, our culture has valued and promoted and made a lot of noise about this, this concept of self-esteem. You know, you, you need to think good of yourself and think of how important you are and don't, people let, you know, don't let people take you down. But, but, but if, you, if you notice, as this, this concept of self-esteem, and it became really popular toward the end of the 80s and early 90s, and then it just skyrocketed in the 2000s. But you know what it hasn't done? It hasn't produced fearless people. In fact, by and large, you just watch the passing of generations, I I think it's produced a lot of terribly afraid people because if if you're looking to people, you know, for how to esteem yourself, then what, what happens is it's, it's like you get caught in a house of mirrors. Ever done one of those at, you know, Carnival? They don't really have many of these in place anymore. But if you ever get a chance to go in, it is pretty strange. I mean, there, there's the mirror maze thing, but then there's those, those bent mirrors, and you go up, and uh, you're, like, elongated, and you have an alien head. Now, you don't need these anymore because you got Snapchat filters that can do all this for you. Um, but you, then there's, a, there's a, a mirror that's bent in the other direction and you look short and fat and, and your appearance is just constantly shifting based upon this mirror. And, and notice it's not you that's changing. It's the bending of the mirror. 
And, and, and you can do this. You, you go to this one person, and, and this is what they like, and then, you know, they have this kind of value system, and they applaud this, and you, and you see yourself in that, and you kind of get this response of, okay, do I matter? You tell me. You tell me, and, and, and you don't realize people are, they're weird, and they have this going on inside of them, and so the, the mirror that's bent in this direction and tells you you're really long and thin, this mirror is bent in the opposite direction and tells you you're short and fat, and so then you're constantly redefining who you are on the basis of what they think and how they react. Well, welcome to a confidence destroyer, and, and, and listen, you know, you're susceptible to this in these years of your life. And it's not uniquely the teenage years where you're susceptible to this because people take this with them the rest of their life and they just don't know what to do. What do I do with people's criticism? Does that now then supply who I'm supposed to be? But, but during, during these years in, in particular, you know, you're trying to understand, what, what am I about what am I like? What am I good at? What, what, what am I going to live for? What am I going to be when I grow up? All right, I know it sounds like that question belongs to Sesame Street, but it's something you're trying to answer right now. And, and listen, if, if, if this is how you get your confidence is, you know, what's my perception of my success, that's going to paralyze you. Or what it'll do, it'll give you an overinflated sense of your importance, and one day the bubble is going to pop, and so this is something that we, we need to be rescued from. But, but here's what's important to see. Christianity is not antagonistic toward confidence. It is antagonistic toward this definition of confidence, this version. Uh, but as uh, Taylor Lemoyne reminded me of the, the rapper propaganda, he, he says in one of his songs, that humility and confidence ain't opposites, right? And then this, is, this is a category to have it's something that in the church world and honestly in, in the world world, they kind of view these things that it's either or, you're either humble or you're, you're confident. Um, in, in the business world, there's a guy named Jim Collins. He's written several books. In one of his books, Built to Last, Successful Habits, visionary companies, he, he has this, this phrase that he uses. He calls it the tyranny of the or and the genius of the and. And here's the point that he's trying to help people who are leading businesses to understand. He says, people kind of put as either or what should be held together. You know, are, are, are we here to serve or are we here to succeed? And he says both. In fact, the, 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 if you just look at the stats, and we ate at Chick-fil-A on the way up, and they proved this as a company, uh, if you're there to serve, you will succeed. Through serving is, is the way to succeed. Or, you know, the concept of servant leadership has really taken off in the business world because people are recognizing that you're, you're profitable and you're influential when you're just there to help others experience something Good and, and Andy Crouch develops this in uh, in his book Strong and Weak, and he says the secret to flourishing is both and it is both power and weakness, authority and vulnerability, capacity and frailty, and life and death. And, and, and the Bible just loves to collide these two themes together. And, and it's all over the book of the Bible that we're going to be studying 
this weekend. But this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12, right? When, when you read these verses, there's, there's just so much interesting here. And I know it's easy to just, just read past that, like that was just a normal thing to say. But he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What's going on there? Well, a hope is something that looks away from you. A, a hope is not about you. It's, a, it's about place, taking your hope and, and placing it in something big and something significant outside of you. And he says, because of that, that posture makes you very bold, right? And, and, and you get that from that second definition in the dictionary of the word confidence, full of conviction, having strong belief or full assurance. And the biblical word that describes this looking away from self-reliance and acting with bold certainty is the word faith. And, and the word confidence, right, it, it comes from the Latin phrase con fide, with faith. And then you're wondering, why did I do that with the graphic, right? Why, why take the parentheses and all that mess? Well, that's to help you remember and to help you see here that this, this word, we get our English word from the Latin phrase to act with faith. And, and we get our English word confide from this as well. When you confide in someone, because to be confident means that you trust something. You're sure about something. There, there's a perceived security and certainty and, and safety in something or someone that leads you to act in a particular way. Now, that can be in yourself or that can be in someone else. And as we'll see tonight, that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's about confidence, rightly defined. It's about living by something sure and certain and desirable that leads you to radical, risk-taking, and sin-destroying pursuits. It wants to orient our hope outward and upward, away from the temporal and the visible to the transcendent and the eternal. And at the start of this year, this is what you need. And this is what I need. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. And we are going to develop three sessions together from this chapter. They're titled Confident in God's Reality, Confident in God's Reward, and Confident in God's Resurrection. And this evening, we're going to focus on the, on the beginning of Hebrews 11, but I'm going to take us back, so just flip over the page to the end of chapter 10, and you can just kind of feel, well, what's going on here? Well, what's the feel of this book? Why, why is Hebrews 11 here? And you get a sense of that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. He says, but recall the former days after you were enlightened... You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Here's some flipping still happening here. Here's how you remember where Hebrews is. You have all those letters uh, that Paul wrote, and then before you get to the book of James and letters that other guys wrote, you have Hebrews. In particular because it's kind of like Paul's stuff, and some people thought he wrote it, but he didn't really, so it's just kind of put right there. So after you've gotten past Paul's letters, you get Hebrews, and then you get James and Peter, and, and everybody else joins the party after that. But we're in Hebrews 10, and then now verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found. Because God had taken him. I mean, isn't that just an awesome story? I'm not going to talk about that tonight. But Enoch is on the world, and then he's gone. Because God took him. Because he pleased God. And, and it fits a theme you'll see developed here. But then he says, Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let me give us a little bit of an insight into, into what's going on in this book. All right, the book of Hebrews is, is written to a particular audience. Uh, it's to the Hebrews, okay? It's, it's to Jews. Everybody's saying bless you, so you're, you're the most blessed man in the house. Uh, it's written to Jews that have come to believe in Jesus, right? So they become Christians, and all of a sudden, life has gotten really hard. Now, it wasn't that life wasn't already hard, right? To, to, to be a Jew among the Roman Empire was to be kind of barely tolerated, right? Nobody liked you, but they didn't kill you, right? You were allowed to exist, you know? You were allowed to, to have a business and kind of you know, manage your life, and, and you might have to deal with some insults and stuff like that. But you weren't wondering, all right, is everything going to get tanked here? Am, am I not going to be able to feed my family? Am I just going to show up and people are going to say, we, we don't do business with you? Um, well, they were discovering 
as they became Christians, that reality changed, right? Because the, 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 the Romans and the Jews, they had kind of had this little back and forth relationship where the Jews said, hey, we're not going to fight you. We're going to accept you ruling over us. And the Romans said, we'll let you kind of do your own religion thing over here. But the Christians, they're the newcomers on the block. And to the Romans, we're like, we don't know who you are. Y'all are weird. Y'all are probably strange. You probably do really strange things. And so they're, 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 there's no reason for the Romans to make the same deal with this new group, uh, that, you know, new group that they thought um, of the Christians. And so all of a sudden, life has become really, really challenging and frightening and discouraging. It's like, it's like the ground has just shifted in, in what was once normal and, and you feel at home here and you feel like I, this is a place where I can have a family and maybe give something to my future descendants. All of a sudden, that's been taken away. And, and, and in this chapter, in chapter 10, people are showing up and they're plundering your property, right? They're showing up and they're saying, hey, hey, that's mine now either because the government's confiscating or just thugs are showing up and taking your stuff because we can get away with that because the Christians aren't in, they're not in power here. People are, are ending up in prison, right, in, in, in this chapter. You see that here. And so what they were tempted to do is, uh, you know, we didn't have all these same problems when we were just Jews. And so maybe we just kind of can go back and just go back to the whole temple thing and sacrifices and, yeah, we still trust in Jesus. And, 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 and the book of Hebrews is written to those people and it's written to convince them, hey, there's nothing to go back to. This is where salvation is. This is where your hope is. This is what is better. This is what God has done in history. All of that was pointing to this it was a shadow that was pointing to this reality. You don't want to trade in something real for some shadow, right? So that's why Hebrews is in the Bible. So these people need theology. They need to understand that, but they need encouragement. They, they need to be convinced, hey, it's worth continuing even when it's really hard. And so he tells them in verse 35, chapter 10, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. He says in verse 39, we're not those who shrink back, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And, and then chapter 11 is just this long illustration of what he has in mind. And he begins by describing the nature of faith. In verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? Those are some interesting words there. Assurance and conviction. And, and the King James used words like substance and evidence. And, and this has given us some insight in, into what kind of thing is faith because biblical faith is, is not wishful thinking. It's not a leap into the dark. All right, it, it acts on the basis of reality. I heard about this uh, woman who goes by the name Zardulu. And she's a, I don't know, YouTuber, fanatic, whatever. Um, and and she, at least she claims to stage artificially viral scenarios. And so, you know, 
there'll be something that'll show up on the news if you think fake news is a problem. This lady, so, you know, there was this viral video about a rat that was like, you know, carrying a slice of pizza that was the size of its body down a subway. Right? And so that, you know, everybody's like, check out the rat, he loves pizza. And, uh, and, and, and so she claims she staged that. She, uh, she trained the rat, you know, so I, who knows? And she, you know, that, that's kind of the genius of her operation is you, you can never really know. Are you, are you faking us? Or, you know, what's going on here? Um, but uh, she, she's also said that there were some scenarios that never really took off, but she spent a lot of time working on it. Like she, she, she had an artist paint out of like black and, and white colors uh, a replica of Donald Trump's face on the hood of a car that looked like it was bird poop. Like birds had just pooped uh, magically in the shape of Donald Trump's face, but apparently nobody ever really noticed that. Uh, so, so she's had some failed attempts. But, but faith, you know, a lot of people think of faith like it's some version of like that. There, there's a lot of hype there. You know, does it really matter if, if the rat scenario or there was another video where a rat jumped on somebody's chest and took a selfie of itself, right? Uh, is that staged or not, right? It's just a video everybody, everybody wants to watch and laugh and share around, and then you kind of move on to something else insignificant in your life. Uh, and a lot of people think faith is kind of like that. It's just, it's just there to help you along the way. It doesn't really matter if, it, if it's real or not, but, but, but that's not how the Bible understands it. it it's not... You know, some people define it as believing something that isn't true, or at least believing something that you, you don't know to be true, or believing without evidence. But Hebrews 11 begins by describing faith as a kind of certainty. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, uh, and I'm going to quote a little bit more from this later on, but it says, true faith is a sure incontestable knowledge. It is a firm confidence. Right, there's our word. Faith, it requires an encounter with something real because trust is always personal. It's always based on an experience of a relationship. And so Louis Burkhoff says, faith is, is a believing acceptance of what another says on the basis of the confidence which he inspires, right? Give you a scenario. If, if I'm going to trust you to babysit my kids, all right, uh, I'm going to need to be confident um, in, in, in your abilities to do that. I'm going to need to know something about you. And I'll just pick some stranger blindly off the street and say, all right, you're up. It's your turn. We're going on a date, uh, right? That, that would not be faith. That, that would be insanity, and, and I would have CPS called on me if I did that. Uh, but, you know, you can't just roll in uh, late and, and high and, and, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and, and I'm not going to hand over my kids to you because there has to be some sort of uh, trust is based in knowledge. It's based in experiencing something about this person that's worthy of you taking your trust and placing it in them. And that's what faith is, which means there, there's something real there, but the nature of faith here in Hebrews 11 is that what it believes in is unseen. Right? It's not contrasted with knowing, but with seeing. Right? It's, it's the substance of what is hoped for. There, there's something 
real, but it hasn't arrived yet in a visible way. It's going to, one day you'll see, but right now you, you don't benefit from physical eyes. Faith relies on another kind of, of perception. There, there's something it has experienced that gives direct warrant to this. Uh, when I was growing up, all the rave was, it was these, these things, things called stereograms. You guys seen something like this? And uh, right now, that just looks like a picture of grass. Uh, but anyway, you, you would kind of put your face up, up close to it, and then you'd pull it away slowly. And I could never really get them right. But, um, and, and you're kind of you're told, don't look at the image, just look away from it. And as your eyes kind of blur over, a three-dimensional image pops off of, the, off of the screen, you know, or off of the page. And you could do that. You could pull it up on, you know, your phone later and and pull it away from your eyes and, and see the image. So there, there's something that's really there, but not everybody sees it. You have, to, you have to perceive it in another way. And that's what faith does. It's, it sees something real in God. I think these things are the reason why a lot of people in my generation needed glasses. Uh, what does faith perceive? Verse six, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? So two things, that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, it might seem a little basic to come to a winter retreat and be told that God exists, right? I hope you, you guys already believe that. hope we don't have any problem. With that, but what the author of Hebrews has in mind, it's not just an acknowledgement of the bare existence of God. What, what, what he says literally is that you need to believe that God is, right? Faith acts on this reality that God is. And do you guys realize how radical that claim is? God just is. He is the great I am. He, he is absolute. It's all about God. From, from all eternity, there was just God. And, 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 and that's all there ever needed to be. Nothing would have been wrong if, if it had been God forever and you and I never showed up. There would be nothing lost in that scenario ultimately. Because you and I, we are transient, we are not necessary, but God is. And listen, that, that should inform how we approach something like this weekend because God does not owe us the time of day. He does not need us. He is perfectly fine in his own triune being. And yet he wants to meet with us. He wants us to draw near, but God is at the center of everything. And, and there are implications for this. It means that God is either infinitely important or he doesn't exist, but there's nothing in between that. God cannot be moderately important. He cannot be shelved. He cannot be shoved to the periphery of your life. He cannot be second best by the nature of what he is. 
and, and, and this, is a, this is a conviction that, that will shape everything else if you really believe it, if this is real, right? Because you, you will either live life, there's only two ways to live life. You will either live life self-consumed or God-consumed. You will either live life obsessed and having your thoughts oriented around you and, and furthering your agenda and getting your way and fighting for what you believe that you deserve. And so therefore, you're going to be fearful and you're going to be manipulative and you're going to try to control people and conflicts are going to be all over life. Right? Why do fights happen? Why, 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 why are there people who, whether they're 14 or 45, there's just, there's just a trail of people behind them that they have hurt and that they, they, they're, I just, that person makes me so angry. I was meeting with somebody last week that just, she's just rattling off all the people that she was angry about and, and for stupid reasons. Right? Where does that come from? It, it, it comes from you being at the center for too long. And, and that's our default setting because of our sin. And you either live life like that or you will live life God-consumed, awakened to the wonder of who he is and therefore living for something that's so much larger than you. But Hebrews wants us to see that that... that Reality is God-centered. He, he stands behind everything. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. It, it, was, it was made out of nothing. And so when you come to the absolute limit, right, the limit of space and time, what's there? What's making that? What's on the other side of that? It, it's the word of God. Underneath everything in creation is the will and command of God. He, he's holding everything together by the word of his power. And, and, and listen, this should influence how you see everything else in the world, right? Uh, science and history and math and all the stuff that you're having to study right now, right? You just throw all that away. Does none of that matter? What that's helping you see, that, that, that's helping you see the realities of the world that God has made. This is the world that you are in. It's the one he owns. And you pick up any fact, you pick up any, anything that's in existence, and, and behind that is something of God. John Piper says, all true learning, all true knowledge reveals that we are dependent on God and must depend on him or perish. Knowledge that leads to self-sufficiency rather than dependence on God is not true knowledge, but flawed knowledge. It's like an archaeologist who finds a beautiful ancient painting but hides it in a locked case and travels around giving lectures on how clever he was to discover it, but never bringing it out for all to admire, lest the beauty of the original treasure detract from his own achievement in finding it. All right, that, that, that's a good insight right there. And that applies to stuff you learn, right? That, you know, that some of you guys in here, God's given you a smart mind, an ability to understand things. And if that just becomes the focus, the grades you've made and the people that you've impressed, and there's nothing there that points to God stands behind that. Right? What a waste. Anything that, that, is, that gets your attention, that's amazing and exciting in this, this life. 
It's intended to direct you toward him. He says, the, the aim of all knowledge is confidence in God, hope in God, trust in God. God is the beginning and the goal of all education. And so he says in verse three, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so do you, you see how the Bible argues here? If, if behind everything you can see is something you can't, the invisible word of God letting it be. And guys, moment by moment, you're here because God gives you permission to live. And it's his word saying, be. I will you to exist. I'm thinking you into being right now. And if that's true, what he's saying here is, what you can see is not what's most important, necessarily. Right, and, and, and yet, if they needed to hear this, how much do we? Because it is so easy for us to think that the stuff that we can touch and see and swipe on an iPhone is what really matters in life. That's where we tend to give our attention. We're, we're constantly distracted by what we can immediately access, whether or not it, it's even going to exist <laughs> the next day. I mean, stuff that literally expires within 24 hours, that can capture our attention over and over and over again. We're tempted to think that it's, it's the visible world that holds some sort of power for us, that, that if, if I can be important in the realm that's seen, in the realm that you can touch and you can feel, that's what's gonna make me matter in this world. And listen, I, I can fall into that temptation all the time. As a pastor, I, I can give my attention to things like study and administration and organizing games for the winter retreat and you know all these things, and those are good things and they should happen. But I, I can get into this sense of feeling like that stuff's got to come into place because that's what people see and that's what they're going to experience. And, and something like prayer, right, it, it doesn't have immediate visible results. But according to this verse, it is a stupid thing for me to give all my attention to this and say, well, I just got to work at this and I got to make sure there's production here and productivity and neglect what is really the power behind the entire universe. Universe came into existence by something that is unseen. And, and God not only creates reality by his word, he, he defines it for us and he makes that interpretation available to us, right? He explains life. And, and that's, that's a gift to us. It's a gift that the one who made you says, okay, here's how to live. Here's how to understand what you're experiencing and, and, and what you should be about. And what faith does here, right? Faith takes the word of God and you place your confidence in that over all of the data that competes with it. Right, if that's the data from from the culture, look at verse seven about Noah. 
It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, right? right, right. A commitment to, to God's word and what it values will, at some point, it will put you out of step with the culture because so much of the culture is opposed to God. And, and Noah experienced this as well. It says he condemned the world, right? Not in the sense that he held up picket signs and protested and said, you guys are all going to hell, right? That, that's not what he means. He, it means he condemned the world by his righteous presence, by the fact that he was there and year after year he was building an ark and the people around him didn't even, you know, they, they know what was going on. There's no reason to believe that. Why in the middle of dry land are you building this humongous boat and, 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 and to their unbelief and ridicule, he said, essentially with his life and with 100 years of effort, I'm sticking with what the word of God tells me is about to happen and the rest of you can go to hell. That's essentially what this means. I'm standing to God. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 4, let God be true and every, though everyone were a liar, right? Even if you get a crowd of people and, and here's an opinion that God has revealed and, and one person says, you know what? I don't like that. I'm not for that. I think that's stupid or obnoxious or backwards, right? So you get one voice saying that, and a lot of us can manage that and say, oh, they're, they're kind of weird. Uh, get five voices saying that, and, and, and that makes us kind of feel like, well, should it really be about this? Collect together 100 voices saying God's opinions are trash. Paul's saying, take all 7 billion people in the world and have them say, God is fake and what he says is stupid. And I'll stare at all 7 billion of them and say, you're liars. Because God is true. Run over the edge if you have to. But I know who's real. Right? That takes confidence. And if you don't have that, if there's nothing in you that resonates that says, that's what I want. Listen, you, you're going to be tossed about because the opinions change like the weather. And you will shift along with them until you're blown around into irrelevance. So please, don't be the kind of people who the, the latest idea, the latest emotion, the latest hashtag has you questioning, is this really a good idea? So faith takes God's word over the competing data in the culture and, and the competing data from your own life, right? Do, does your faith waver with your day-to-day your -day experience? When life goes well, you're content to follow the Lord, but when it disappoints, you, you get grumpy and you give in to sin. You kind of have this, this sense of, well, this isn't worth it because life sucks right now, so what's the point of even trying to obey? And... And I'm sure, I suck too, but that's all right. I'm just going over the edge here. What happened there? Did, did this change or did life change? Right? These people in, in Hebrews, they're walking through. Life has suddenly become unlivable. 
in an important sense, right? They're, they're facing insults and shame and beatings, and they're tempted to give up. Peter O'Brien says, in the light of their experiences of suffering, the listeners might be tempted to think that God would not be true to his promises, but past experiences of faithful men and women who faced apparently hopeless situations showed that God was wholly reliable and his word of promise could be fully trusted. And listen, I know some of you have walked through some real challenges this year. It's been hard. Family dynamics have been hard. Friendship realities have been hard. And you can become hardened by those hard realities of life. And God wants to protect you from that. And so he's given us this book. Hebrews 11 is here to stir up their confidence in, in ours. He gives the example of Abraham and Sarah in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And here's the question that I ask. Where's that instinct come from? Where, where, where does a couple in their 90s with no natural and visible reason to believe that what God has promised is going to come true, all they have is stars in the sky. They don't have the seen reality of all the children that God has promised to come to them. And they say, I'm going to believe him. Where does that come from? Well, Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When, when we neglect God's word, his, his voice becomes a whisper in the midst of the noise. But, but discernment, it requires constant practice, right? This is the forming of habits, and we do a lot of things out of habit, right? You, you do some things and you, you don't even necessarily have to think through the process that's leading to that. It, it, it has become so normal as a feature of your life, you'd almost do it without thinking because it, it's, it's become a habit. But, but for so many of us, the categories of the Christian life that God is wanting us to pursue, we never really give them the chance to actually become a habit, we never really put in place practices that we say, I'm going to stick with this until it becomes so natural and normal, it would be weird for me to do anything else. Right, so what, what kind of habits does God want to build in you this year? And we'll have some time to consider that tomorrow. But things like Bible reading and intake, right? Over time, you read, you read, you read, you read the next day, you read the day you don't feel like it, you read the day when it's really exciting and so much is happening, you read the other day when it's just the thing to do. And you know what happens over time? Convictions about God's word, the kinds that Abraham and Sarah had, are built in you. It lets you, you allow it to shape and reshape your thoughts and, and perspective. We need to meditate on God's word, sing it, delight in it. Uh, other habits give rise to that. Things like, I'm going to 
trim down the amount of time I spend on video games or uh, texting or social media, right? I, I've had to rein in some things over the past year. I, I did this where I just realized it was just too normal for me to pull out a device and check social media. And that was just like this, this we, it became a habit. And, and it's not a bad thing, but over time, you can only be aware of so many things. And, and that's like, I'll take your attention now, and I'll take your attention. And the things that God wants to build in us get neglected. Hebrews 6 verse 1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Right? Here's the amazing thing. God has maturity planned for your life. Maturity of, of discernment, of knowledge, of righteousness, maturity of, of, of convictions that, that are immovable. And, 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 and that's, that's the plan, right? God, God never planned for us to just circle the same experience over and over again, year after year, and we're not seeing any progress there. And it's the same old normal stuff. Guys, there's, there's something better that he has in store for us. But it, it, it takes our pursuit. But here's the good news in this, is that what we don't have to go on to, what we don't have to arrive at, what we already have is the favor of God. And we need to be convinced of this as well. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists. We saw that. And that he rewards those who seek him. Not, not, not just that God exists out there, but who is he to you? This God, this God who, who wants you to seek him, who's eager to reward you. And we're going to look at that reward aspect tomorrow night, but tonight I, I want us to feel again this thing that becomes too familiar too quickly. It's that we have the favor of God. We have his love. We have his support. We have his empowerment. It's a God who wants you to draw near. And that, that's what essentially the entire book of Hebrews is all about, as we have access. Heidelberg Catechism, I quoted from earlier. Here's the full answer. It asks the question, what is true faith? It says, true faith is a sure incontestable knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to me in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ. Merits. And so Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, some of the imagery here is a little bit lost on us because 
Maybe we don't know the Old Testament, but we certainly haven't lived in it. But, but the, this is familiar concepts that he's describing here. He says that we have confidence to enter the holy places. Right? In, in the temple, you had the outer courts, and then you had the most holy place. Right? First of all, Gentiles, they were outside of everything. So you and me, if we're not ethnic Jews, we weren't even allowed on the scene. Uh, there was a court of the Gentiles, but when it came to the, the intimacy of the, of the temple, we weren't supposed to be there. And then there was the holy place. That was res- reserved for the priesthood. And then inside of that was the, the holy of holies. And one person, the high priest, one day, a year got to go in there. And when he went in there, he better bring blood with him because this was the presence of God. You don't enter it lightly. People could die by just treating God's presence like it was something trivial, like he was not a consuming fire. And yet Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. He means right through into the holy of holies. It's available to us. It's been opened up to us. And he's telling this audience here, don't go back. Don't think you can just go back to the whole temple thing and that's okay. Don't you realize what you'd be missing out on, what God has made available to us this amazing new covenant reality of immediate access to God. Listen, this, this is not been available since the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked with God in his presence unhindered by sin and he's saying what Jesus came to do is to bring you right back there through the the curtain and he says that is through his flesh right when Jesus died That curtain that divided the holy place to the holy of holies. It was like a curtain that was like this thick. It was torn in two because Jesus' flesh was torn open so that the price of our access could be purchased. And we are invited in. and, 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 And we have things like a high priest who's pleading your interest. You know, I, I trust that you, you're concerned about your spiritual health, that you, and I know this is, this is what it means to be a Christian, right? There, there's something inside of you that says, I want to live for God. I want to do what's right. I want to be about what he's about. And, there, and there's something in us that recognizes, oh, I'm prone to wander, but Lord, bind my heart to you. Keep me close, God. Hold me here. And the reality is, as much as we want that, there is someone who wants that for you perfectly and who is your high priest and who is pleading your case before the Father and who's ensuring they're going to make it. They're going to go on to maturity. They're not going to be left behind. They're not going to throw away their confidence. They're going to run all the way into heaven because... I'm praying for them. 
and I'm making sure they'll be brought all the way home. We have things in this passage like full assurance of faith, hearts that are sprinkled clean, You know, maybe you're aware of things you have pursued, what you've done in secret, relationships that you've run after and that have fallen apart, something only you know about or maybe something everybody knows about. And you know the guilt and you know the shame that comes from that. And what he's saying here is you can be totally clean in God's eyes. You don't have to do anything extra to manage that. What can I do to undo this, to put this right, to, to reverse the clock and just go back and I've never done that or I would never have done that for the hundredth time. There's nothing about you that manages you being clean before God is the death of Jesus. It is his blood. It is his righteousness that he takes and he presents before the Father and he says, hey, you with confidence, go to him. Go to him. You're already perfect in his eyes because of what I've done. doesn't mean we don't need to repent of our sin. We need to do that. But we always do so with the confidence God loves us. Doesn't think less of us. We, we're not removed in our standing from him because of what we've done. How we've thrown away things that he's given us. How we've treated him lightly and been obsessed with so many other things than him. We can still be clean. Now I know, again, like I said earlier, and Eric, wherever you are, bro, you can come back up, man. I know that these are things that you guys don't need to wonder where Eric is. He can, he can manage that. Um, these are things that we know, right? These are things that are somewhere in our heads. But it, it's, it's one thing to know this. It's something else to be in touch with it. It's one thing to have this on the page somewhere. It's another thing for this to produce confidence in you because if you're not in touch if, if if you're not aware that this is what God has done this is who he is then then you're not going to approach him you're going to stay distant you're going to stay quiet because listen there 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 is something frighteningly honest about visiting with God when it's just you and him and you are alone, what are you going to do? There's no hiding there. There are no excuses. Right? There, there, there's nothing you can do to sugarcoat that. And it's, well, what I really meant, what I really was about, he sees right through us. And yet he sees that we're clean. And you need to be in touch with this if you're going to come near to him. Let's stand together.
just want to invite you to consider where is your faith? You trust God. Right? Faith is more than just a raw acknowledgement of God's existence and His abilities. It, it, it is a pursuit. The one who draws near to God must believe this about Him. Those who seek Him, it, it, it means coming to Him and coming with great expectations. Wanting to lay hold of something in Him that you need. Is there faith inside of you tonight? Is there a posture of, God, I know, I know you want to reveal yourself to me. I know there's more. There's, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than the, the little thoughts that I have in my head of you. There's got to be more than just the few things that I've experienced and encounter, there's got to be more than just small categories of obedience and large categories of neglect. And God, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that I've been dislocated, but I want to draw near to you. I don't want to hide that. I don't want to hide in the excuses of my experiences and think that sin is okay because life has been hard and that it's understandable why I've not been about you and why I've run after things that are displeasing to you because... I've been depressed because I've been upset. Listen, the people in this book, they, they were facing some challenging, challenging, life-threatening things. And this author says, come to him. Hebrews 4, 16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy, undeserved kindness, grace for our needs. I just want us to do that tonight. I just want allow you to create some conversation between your soul and God. Allow Him to locate you in, in His universe, the one that exists by His Word. Maybe to just put you in touch again with the fact that He's real. And the stuff you see and the stuff you touch, no matter how much it gets your attention, it's not what's most important. He's real. And He loves you. And he wants you to draw near. So let's just visit with the Lord in our own hearts for a little bit. And then Eric's going to lead us in singing tonight.